Well, by the way, the emotional high point of the evening's already passed. <laughs> Just, I thought I'd give you a heads up. Um, I want to talk to you tonight about how exilic generosity can transform the city. I want to talk to you about what the Bible means when it talks about the city. I want, secondly, to talk to you about how the Bible calls us to be exiles. And then lastly, I want to show you how exilic generosity can change the city. So first of all, when the Bible talks about cities or the city, and it talks about it a lot, what does it mean? Uh, most of the time, the word city means what you and I consider literally a city, uh, a, uh, a population center of mass and density. Lots and lots of people densely compacted in, <clears throat> that's a city. And the Bible's very realistic about literal cities. Uh, in some ways, the mag you might say the magnitude of the number of people there is a kind of magnifier, like a magnifying glass of whatever's in human nature. And therefore, you always find the best and the worst of humanity in cities. Uh, you, uh, it, it sort of brings out the best and the worst. And this um, very realistic, not negative, not positive, uh, the, 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 the thing you get from the Bible is not so much a positive view or a negative view of the city. What you get from the Bible is it is incredibly important to anybody who cares about reaching the world. Uh, and the reason it's so important is because it, it, it is this mixture of negative and positive. And you're going to see uh, the earlier parts of the Bible, uh, the city, the, the negative aspects of the cities are brought out. In fact, you know, the first city was built by a guy named Cain. <clears throat> the rest of his resume wasn't very good, spiritually speaking. Um, the first skyscraper, is, you know, Sally's all excited about skyscrapers. The first skyscraper was this thing called the Tower of Babel, uh, where people came together to say, let us make a name for ourselves, which is one of the reasons most people go to skyscrapers or build them. Uh, and, of course, God had to uh, judge that city because it was a city built on uh, human glorification. It was a city built... Uh, to make a name for ourselves, not to glorify the name of God, but to make a name for ourselves, to glorify ourselves. Uh, in the early part of the Bible, you may notice that when Abraham and Lot split up, Lot went to a city, Abram stayed away from the city, and it didn't turn out so good for Lot. And all kinds of things in the early part of the Bible show you all the problems with cities. But then as time goes on, I'll get back to this in a minute, when, when Jesus, pardon me, when God brought the children of Israel into the promised land, he commanded them to build some cities. He wouldn't let them be strictly an agrarian, uh, rural uh, kind of civilization. He commanded them to build several cities. Uh, and when you get to the New Testament, what you see is a remarkably positive approach to cities. In what way? Well, if you look at the book of Acts, if you look at really carefully, you'll see that the Apostle Paul, generally speaking, went to cities rather than the countryside. If he wanted to reach Macedonia, you can look at uh, Acts chapter 16. It says he wanted to reach Macedonia. God called him to Macedonia. God didn't tell him where to go except to go to Macedonia. It was in a dream, remember? The man from Macedonia said, come over. So God was telling him to go to Macedonia. So what did Paul do? He went to the chief city of Macedonia, the biggest city in Macedonia, 
Philippi. He planted a church there, and then he left. Why? Because he knew that if you reach the city of a region, you've reached the region. So by the time of Constantine, uh, and these, these the, uh, the scholars argue about the stats, but around the time of Constantine, it was it's generally understood that over the first three centuries, uh, Christianity grew quite a bit, and there were eventually 10% of the population of the Roman Empire was Christian by the time, uh, after about three centuries. But something like 40% of the cities were Christian because, because of what Paul had done, that is the, the, the missionary work started in cities because the way you reach a region is you reach the city. And see, so here's, here's the point, is the countryside was pretty much pagan, but the cities were Christian. But see, if the cities are Christian and the countryside is pagan, which direction is the culture going? See, if the, if, the, if, the, if the cities are Christian and the countryside is pagan, the society is going Christian. On the other hand, if, like, like uh, some cultures I know today, if the, if the countryside is more Christian but the cities are more pagan, which way is the country going? See? So Paul understood that. The Bible understands that. And that's the reason why ministry to literal cities has always been so crucial. But when you see the word city in the Bible, it doesn't always mean a literal city. Especially when you get to uh, Isaiah and actually in the book of Revelation, it's talking about these two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. Uh, and it, 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 when you first listen to it, it, it almost seems like it's talking about two literal cities until you begin to realize it's not. Not only did Babylon eventually go away in many ways, uh, but when you get to uh, Galatians, by the way, chapter 4 literally says that when Paul talks about Jerusalem, he's talking about the city of God, not the city of man. And the city of God is Jerusalem, which is above. Uh, the fact is that when the Bible often talks about city, it means the culture. When it talks about reaching the city, it's not just talking about literal cities, it's talking about the culture. And when it, Babylon eventually becomes, because remember, remember the Tower of Babel? That was the beginning of Babylon in the, in the biblical story. And it was the place where people went to make a name for themselves. And so Babylon comes to mean human culture based on power, on self-glorification, as opposed to the city of God, which is a human culture based on love and the glorification of God. And of course, if we had a culture like that, based on love and service, not power and exploitation, uh, uh, an entire culture built to lift up the name of God rather than our own name and getting, uh, making a name for ourselves, it would be, it would be, a, it would be a, a culture of shalom, perfect shalom. And the word shalom in the Bible, of course, means peace. Yes, it's translated peace, but it means full flourishing, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, economically, physically, in every single way. And so when the Bible talks about Babylon and talks about the city, often it's not talking about literal cities, it's just talking about the heart of the culture. Now the reason, the reason the word city came to mean the heart of the culture is interesting. Remember I told you I was gonna get back to this? Why did God tell uh, the children of Israel they had to build cities when they came uh, into the promised land? The reason is that cities originally were the birthplaces of culture. As a matter of fact, there was no civilization outside of city. In fact, think of the word civilization. 
okay, class. Where does the word civilization come from? It comes from the Latin word civitas, which means city. And to be civilized was to be citified, was the same thing. And here's why. Why did, why did God say build, build these cities, which were, by the way, called cities of refuge? Why? Because away from the city, if somebody killed somebody else, what happened? Blood feud. But in the city, you had both the safety, you had a wall, which created stability, and you had the numbers to create something called jurisprudence. You couldn't have blood feuds in a city. You had enough people. Uh, you had a stability there. Uh, you had a safety, and so jurisprudence developed instead of blood feuds. Or outside of the city, you had bartering. You know, I'll give you my cow and you give me this, or something like that. Inside cities developed markets, currencies, because you had enough people to have a market, and commerce developed. Outside the cities, there was no commerce. Inside, commerce develops, jurisprudence develops, education develops. Outside the city was illiteracy. Inside the city, you had the numbers to do scholarship and the arts. And so originally all culture was formed in cities and there was no culture outside of cities. And now you begin to see why, why uh, you know, uh, the Bible starts to actually say this, to, to, to talk about reaching the cities, it does mean to reach literal cities, but it also means to reach a culture. And this is also one of the main reasons why uh, uh, Paul understood that if I go to a particular city, it's the, uh, in, a, in a region, it's the center of the commerce, it's the center of the education, it's the center of the, um, uh, the jurisprudence. And if I, wanna, if I go to a small town, I might reach the lawyer in town. If I go to a small town, I might reach the artist in town. But if I want to reach the arts, if I want to reach the, the legal profession, if I want to reach, you see, if I want to reach the culture, I go to the city. Now, what's all this, what's, you know, what's all this mean? Uh, you say, that's kind of obsolete now. I mean, the fact is we've got jurisprudence everywhere. We've got arts everywhere. You don't have to be in cities. Right, right. Uh, today, there is a waterfall effect. That is to say, the biggest cities of the world still are cultural forges, as they always have been, because you have this, you have, uh, the, this uh, incredible concentration of talent. You have this incredible concentration of diversity, which creates innovation. And so there's a tendency for the biggest cities of the world to actually forge a culture, which then it's a waterfall. It comes down to the second size cities, and then eventually comes down into the arts and eventually gets out into the entire world. If you want to reach the culture, you have to reach the cities. But the fact of the matter is everybody in this room, even those of you who say, well, we're in a small town, so we're really not in this city. Yeah, you are, and here's why. Here's two interesting quotes from a couple of... Uh, uh, one is the Financial Times a couple years ago, one is foreign policy. They both did um, special issues on why cities today are growing in both in size and culture. I don't think I have to spend much time telling you about the, the, the growth in size. You probably know this. You know, when I was born, and some of you, it was a real long time ago, but nevertheless, it was uh, when I was born, 30% uh, of all the people in Latin America lived in cities. Today it's 80%. All the people in Latin America live in cities. When I was born, Kinshasa, the capital of the Congo, had 200,000 people. Pretty soon it'll be about 16 million. New York, uh, America has nine cities, I think, with more than a million population inside the city limits. 
pretty soon China will have 200. Uh, the people of the world are just pouring into cities. And because of globalization, cities that have always been forges of culture are actually becoming more powerful in their effect. So things that would be, say, in New York City and would take uh, 20 years to get to, to a small town in Iowa, now get there in about 10 minutes. Uh, as a matter of fact, you, surely you know, for example, that a, um, a teenager in Mexico, say somewhere in Mexico City, and a teenager in a small town in Iowa, and a teenager in New York City are really not that different. Whereas the grandparents of the teenager in New York, the grandparents of the teenager in Mexico City, and the grandparents of, this, of, the, of, the, of the teenager in Iowa are incredibly different people. The kids aren't. Why? Because globalization means stuff that is forged in cities now goes everywhere. And that's the way, so you have, these two quotes are interesting. At the end of the um, uh, foreign, the, uh, part, uh, foreign policy, had a special issue on how incredibly important cities are today. And it said, the 21st century, this is a quote, the 21st century will not be dominated by America or China, Brazil or India, but by cities. Cities rather than states are becoming the islands of governance on which the future world order will be built. Time, technology, and population growth has massively accelerated the advent of this new urbanized era. 100 cities in the world produce 30% of the world economy and almost 100% of all of cultural innovation. But here's the most interesting thing. Financial Times did a similar kind of thing. Oh, cities are so cool and big. And then suddenly it comes up with this. Digital networking, to talk about the internet. The internet has not, as was forecast, led to a decline in the city. See, many people said, oh, well, the internet means you don't actually have to live in cities anymore. You can, you can do it from home. You can live wherever you want, okay? So he says, digital networking has not, as was forecast, led to a decline in the city. Rather, it has led to an urbanization of the planet. It has not led to a decline in the influence of the city. It's led to an explosion. The fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter where you live in practically. And by the way, as you know, people in Africa who actually don't even have a well with decent water in that village, they all have a cell phone. And so what's actually happening is we're all in the city. And here's my second point. As far as the Bible is concerned, the city's really important, okay? The city is the forger of culture. Number two, the city, human society here, is Babylon. And if you're a Christian, you're in exile. Now let's talk about this for a second. It's very important. Actually, Sally's already uh, uh, very briefly went by and, and quoted from uh, Jeremiah 29. But now here's what's interesting about Jeremiah 29. Uh, the children of Israel had, of course, built their own cities. They built the cities of refuge and, of course, Jerusalem. And therefore, they, they lived in, uh, even those cities, of course, were imperfect, but they were believing cities. They were cities based on belief in God, belief in the Bible. But then, of course, the Babylonian invasion, and Nebuchadnezzar comes and sacks uh, Jerusalem and carries the educated classes first, by the way, it was the educated classes leaving the poor behind into exile in Babylon, and they were called to come and live in Babylon. 
This suddenly meant the believing community had to figure out a whole new way of relating to the city. And there were two options in front of them. Now let me read you what God says to them and you'll see what his option is. But it also actually refers to the other two options. Listen. Uh, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is Jeremiah 29. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give daughters in marriage, your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is what I say, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams of those prophets. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them. What in the world is that all about? Here's what it's about. The Babylonians had a strategy. The reason why the Babylonians brought the educated classes of Israel to Babylon, left the poor behind, was because the educated classes are the bearers of the culture. There's the artists, there's the governors, there's the, there's the, uh, uh, the entrepreneurs, there's the, the wealthy, there's the, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're the educated classes and they bear the culture. They made them come to Babylon because they felt, they believed, if they moved in and participated in the culture within a generation or two, you know what happens. You know, your kid comes in speaking only Hebrew, but they grew up there and their kids only speak Babylonian and their grandchildren aren't even gonna think of themselves as Jews anymore. In other words, it was, it was an effort at cultural annihilation. It was a way of completely subjugating these vassal states that they had conquered. And the way they were gonna do that, they, brought the, they, they were gonna just try to assimilate, culturally assimilate the educated classes of, of, uh, of Israel. And so what they said is, move in, Engage in the culture, hmm? uh, participate in the culture, serve, be friendly to us, and lose all of your distinctive beliefs. Okay? You just come like us. However, the prophets, when, when the children of Israel got there, before they actually moved into Babylon, they, they had a, a kind of holding place. It was, a, it was a colony outside of Babylon on the Kabar Canal. And at that point, the, uh, the prophets, like Hananiah, excuse me, in chapter 28, the chapter 4, Hananiah starts to say, the Lord has said uh, that I will destroy Babylon in two years and you'll be home, so don't move in there, have nothing to do with them, or only have as much to do with Babylon as you need in order to survive, but just hold back and wait. And then Jeremiah sends this letter from God to the exiles. Now, you see the two options? Stay out, be hostile, and stay distinct in your beliefs and your identity. Or move in, engage, participate and serve, and lose all your beliefs and assimilate. What does God say? Did you hear it? He diagonalizes the two options. You know what it means to diagonalize? Of course you don't, because a friend of mine coined the term, and I'm just telling you about it. To diagonalize the two options is both to contradict them, and yet at the same time, uh, co-opt the best parts of each one. Contradict them, they're both wrong, both wrong. We're not talking about something in the middle between the two. What we're doing is we contradict them and yet we also actually deal with all their best concerns. Here's what God says, I want you to move in. I want you to settle down. I want you to totally participate in all the ways that the Babylonians want. 
But I want you to absolutely stay distinct in your beliefs. You do not culturally assimilate at all. You engage, but, and you serve. You participate in the economy. You participate in the life. But you stay completely true to me, which is the most difficult possible of any option. I mean, think about that. Uh, in fact, they both kind of make sense. The two options make sense. Move in, and you'll become just like them. Stay out and be hostile, and then you'll maintain your identity. God says, no, move in, get completely engaged, and keep your identity. How are they going to do that? Well, he tells them two things. One is increase in numbers, do not decrease. You keep yourself as a counterculture. You keep your identity. You, you still say, we are Israelites. We are believers in the true God. But then he says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. And many of you know the word peace there. In fact, it's used three times. God says, I want you to seek the shalom of Babylon. I want you to make it a great place to live. Three times he says, seek the peace. Pray for it. Now keep in mind that the, the city that he's telling the Jews to seek its prosperity, do justice and mercy, make it a good place to live, okay? The Babylonians had the blood of the Jewish friends and relatives on their hands. They had been forcibly removed. The Babylonians had gone and sacked Jerusalem. They had killed many of their friends and relatives. And now God is saying, I want you to go in there and I want you to love that city. Pray for that city. Seek the peace and shalom of that city. But in no way do you lose your, your particular identity. Wow, why? That's an exile. You're not going in as terrorists. You're not going in as tourists. You're going in as exiles. Not terrorists, not tourists. You're not just passing through, kind of. Nor are you the Amish over here. No offense to the Amish, I love the Amish. But anyway... Now, what about us Christians? You say, well, that was the Jews. That was a particular time. That was kind of, they were, that's interesting. And that's the Old Testament. That does, oh, yeah. Look at the very beginning of, of Peter. Look at the very beginning of James. The first, the first verse of Peter, the first verse of James, refers to, it's a, it's a letter to, the, to Christians, and it says to the exiles. We're all exiles now. And I'd like to make this case. Four things. Christians have to recognize that you're in Babylon now. Actually, we always have been, but let me, I'll talk about that. You have to embrace the fact you're exiles. Number two, you have to realize the way to reach or change uh, a city, the way to reach and change a hostile culture, is to become an alternate city in the city, a counterculture. Number three, it's generosity, which is the heart of what will make that a true counterculture but integral generosity. And number four, I know I've got 11 minutes left, but I'm going to do it, okay? But number four, the gospel is the only way you're going to have that kind of generosity. So, okay, number one, exile. America has always been Babylon. We just didn't know it. We thought we were at home here. We said, we're Christians, and everybody's a kind of Christian. Well, sort of. The fact of the matter is, I, I believe ever since Jesus came back the first time, ever since he came the first time, and he created his church, We've always been exiles. We've always been out of step. Uh, there has never been a truly, completely Christian society. We just thought there was. We've always been out of step. You know, we, we, uh, uh, you know the, 
Europe thought they were creating Christian societies, and so did America, North America. I know I shouldn't, nobody with an American accent should say this, but I mean, Sally knows this. Uh, I will not cease my mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand until we've built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. That's a, that's a very, very famous hymn, a song that's sung in England. And the idea behind it, William Blake, the idea behind it is we're creating Jerusalem here. We're creating a Christian culture. The fact of the matter is England never was a completely, there's never been until Jesus come back, the city of God. It's always been the city of man. There have been more or less, uh, there have been cultures that have been more or less influenced by Christianity, but we, it's always been Babylon. And now, in the last 10 or 20 years, do we not see that we're exiles? We're exiles. The culture is getting more hostile. It's becoming less Christian, less overt. It used to be implicitly kind of background Christian. That's going away. And a lot of Christians are freaking out in America. And they're saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, first of all, you need to embrace the fact that we're exiles. Now, what does it mean for Christians to be exiles? Well, you go to the book of Acts, and you'll see it. So, for example, the Christians in, in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, these are pretty famous places. Uh, because even though it was Jerusalem, don't forget, the real Jerusalem is above. And that Jerusalem, in that Jerusalem, the early Christians were an alternate city, a kind of counterculture inside the city. And listen carefully, what's, it, what, what's the heart? Is it, what does it mean to be a counterculture? It says, uh, this is Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Uh, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, what do you hear in there? There's a counterculture. We're a community. There's evangelism. They're increasing in number, okay? In other words, they're being the exiles. They're doing what they should do. But at the heart of it all was generosity. All the believers were together, had everything in common. They sold property to give to anyone who had need. In chapter 4, Acts 4, again, let's listen to this. It's another description of the counterculture that they created. It was so different from the, the, the way the rest of the city and the culture operated around them. Uh, this is chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was uh, distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. See, you see them increasing in numbers, but to a great degree, the generosity is tied to what a powerful witness the apostles' preaching was. Uh, they, they're creating a, a tight community, a kind of city inside a city, an alternate city, a city based on love and on service, not on power and exploitation. You know, a little, a, a, a foretaste of the future city of God right in the middle of the city of man. But at the heart of it is generosity. Um, 
Here, here's not from the Bible, just want you to know it's not from the Bible, but an early Christian document called the Letter of Diognetus. Listen carefully. The early Christian document, quote, Christians share their table with all, but not their bed with all. They love everyone, but are persecuted by all. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are short of everything, and yet have plenty of all things. Now, he's being... Uh, He's actually saying something paradoxical, and he's also being satirical. He's saying, we live in a society of people who love to share their beds with everybody. They're sexually promiscuous, but when it comes to their money, they're tight. We actually are quite tight with our sex. We only have sex with somebody that I've given my entire life to. It's called marriage. But when it comes to our money, spread it everywhere. They're poor, yet make many rich. They're short of everything, yet have plenty of all things. At the heart of what made this counterculture counter, at the heart of what made it grow, at the heart of what, in a sense, showed the world around it, that showed Babylon uh, what it was really about. It was about power. It was about rapaciousness. It was about ruthlessness. It was about dog-eat-dog. A church is an alternate city inside the city. It's actually a witness against the culture around it by saying, look at our generosity. This is, this is a city based on love and service, not power and exploitation. Now, Larry Hurtado has written a couple books. He's a, uh, uh, a, uh, a New Testament scholar who has really studied the early church, not just the early church in the Bible, but the early church in the century or two afterwards. And he said the earliest church was marked by five things. And those five things were just mind-blowing to the people from the outside. It was, it was the alternate city, the kind of foretaste of the city of God, showing the city of man, showing Babylon what it was really like. And those five things were this. Number one, it was the first multi-ethnic religion in history. The, in other words, the early Christians were of all the different races, Every other religion had always been, well, you know, you're from that country, that's your religion. You're from that city, that's your religion. You're from that race, that's your religion. But Christians said, no, there's only one God, and he's the God of all races, which meant when you got converted, Christians were multi-ethnic. The Christian churches were multi-ethnic. It was the first multi-ethnic church, which meant minorities were brought in to this church. In a way, they were excluded in other parts of society. So number one, it was multi-ethnic fellowship. Number two, it was radically concerned about the poor. Christians were, were famous for caring about the poor and all kinds of poor people in ways that the pagans just were not, which of course meant the church was not just better for minorities, it was also better for the poor. Number three, it was pro-life. The Romans and the Greeks just threw kids out, I mean infants out, especially if they were girls because, well, that's not what we really want. Infanticide was legal, abortion certainly was legal. And so, what the, but the early Christians said, no, 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 no. Abortion is wrong, infanticide is wrong, and so what, the, what very often the Christians would do is they'd go to the garbage dumps where infants had been thrown out, and they brought them back in, and they adopted them, and they raised them. Better for minorities, better for the poor, better for children. Number four, traditional sexual, what we would call traditional sexuality, but the early church had a revolutionary new sex ethic, which was no sex, outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. In that day and time, in the Roman world, 
if you got married, the wife couldn't have sex, but the husband was expected to have plenty of sex anywhere he wanted to because the wife was kind of owned by the husband and the husband had all the power. And you know, you couldn't expect husbands to, you know, uh, you know he, they, have to, you know, they have to have an outlet and that sort of thing. Along comes Christianity and says, no, no double standard, not at all. Sex only within marriage between a man and a woman, period. Better for women, better for kids, better for the poor, better for minorities. By the way, there was a fifth thing that Larry Hurtado said, and that is that when you killed Christians, they didn't come and kill you. They forgave. And see, the most amazing thing about exiles is this. How can you ask the Jews, whose, whose relatives have been killed to, by, by the leaders of a city, to move to a city and seek its peace and prosperity? You would have to get rid of all your fear, and you have to get rid of all your anger and contempt. You can't serve a city filled with anger and contempt, and you can't serve a city if you're afraid they're going to come and do something to you. There'd have to be an amazing boldness, and there'd have to be an amazing ability to forgive. And Christians had that. And this is what I started trying to tell you this morning is integral generosity. When I say it, this morning we said, scattering gathers, gathering scatters. And what that means is that if from top to bottom, if you hold on to your money rather than giving it away, you'll never really get real wealth. We talked about that. But it comes from Jesus. In Philippians 2, we're told, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What is it? Being in very nature God, he emptied himself. Being in very nature God, he didn't hold on to his equality with God, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, dying a death on the cross. Did you hear that? Being in very nature God. Listen with, to me. If somebody says, being a really nice guy, he helped a little old lady across the street. What does that mean? Because he was a nice guy, he helped a lady across the street. All right. Being in very nature God, he emptied himself of his glory so that he could save us on the cross. Do you know what that means? Because he was God, it's the nature of God to give up power and privilege. That's what he's saying. That's the nature of God, to give up power and privilege. What did he do? He took his glory, Jesus' glory, and he scattered it. He gave it away. With both hands, he just let it go. He became mortal. He became ordinary. He became killable. He became vulnerable. That's generosity. Integral generosity, because see, if you're going to open the doors to other people of other races, that takes what? Not just financial generosity, you have to be willing to give up power. If you want to help the poor, you've got to give up money. If you want to help bring children to your home, you've got you to give up part of your living space. You see? In other words, if we're going to become a counterculture, it can't just be financial, though, that, of course, that's part of it. It has to be the integral generosity that flows from this. I see Jesus Christ doing all this for me, emptying himself for me, being scattered so we could be gathered. We talked about that this morning. That's what will get rid of my fear. That's what will get rid of my anger so that I can actually love people, engage, and keep my identity as a Christian in this culture. What, I mean, what do I mean by <laughs> Jesus Christ, you are so bad that Jesus Christ had to die for you. That gets rid of your anger against the pagans because you're no better than they are, right? You can only be angry at somebody if you feel superior to them. But when you realize 
You were so bad that Jesus had to die for you. That gets rid of your anger and your contempt. But Jesus loved you so much, he was glad to die for you. And that should get rid of your fear. He's going to care for you. He's not going to give up on you. He's not going to let you go. So look, let's be exiles. Let's be an alternate city in every city. Let's reach the literal cities, but let's reach our culture. Are Christians today anything like those early Christians? Do people, are people amazed at how multi-ethnic we are? That every church is bringing together people that outside of the church don't get along, but inside the church their brothers and sisters are getting along. Is the church amazed at that? I mean, is the world amazed at that? Not really. Is the world amazed? That, are we famous for, being, for helping the poor and doing justice and mercy? No, not yet. Here's some good steps. Are we famous for being pro-life? Yeah. But I mean, do we do, the, do we do it the way the early church did it? I mean, not just promoting politicians, but do we, do we, bring, do we bring kids into our home? Do we, I mean, do we really bring the families in? Are we being generous enough that we become the kind of alternate city in the city that it really has an impact? No, but the key, the key to it, becoming that kind of community is exilic generosity. Generosity. Have the same mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for uh, this survey that your Bible gives us of how uh, human culture works and how we can be exiles in a culture that's turning, that's changing. Uh, those of us who have been around for a while, especially living in the United States, we say, what happened? Well, it's always been Babylon. We just didn't know it. It's never been Jerusalem. We pray now that you would teach us how to be, uh, how to increase and not decrease and seek the peace of the cities and the places where we are. Uh, Father, help us, the, in, help us also to expect a lot of rejection, but to turn the other cheek, not stop loving people, not stop serving people. And we know the key to it all is our own generosity, which will only flow out of seeing the generosity of your son, Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, emptied himself, because that's the way you are, O Lord. So help us to be like him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.